Turn on the page on another chapter. Luke chapter 14. We're going to cover 15 verses today, a big chunk, and uh, hopefully that'll place us in a good place for next weekend. As you've told, uh, been told already by Pastor Weiler, the theme for Resurrection Sunday is going to be uh, forevermore, the future and uh, the eternal state. And uh, fortunately, we're going to find out in verse 16 next week that that is going to include some eating. So we'll get to eat. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. It happened that when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And Jesus took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. He said to them, When you are inviting, invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed everyone, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Look forward to that day. Well, chapter 14 provides us with some new scenery, a new ministry setting for Jesus. In the last paragraph of chapter 13, uh, the Pharisees we saw were asking him to leave their area. They wanted him to depart. But in verse 1 of our passage today, Jesus finds himself invited to dine at one of their homes. So there has been a change of setting, probably some time has lapsed, and as so often observed in Luke, Jesus is invited to dine with the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. This time it is with one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Your translation might say rulers of the Pharisees. Actually, that means he was likely a member of the high court, the Sanhedrin, a man of great influence in that culture. But what is unique about verses 1 through 6 is that the Pharisees don't say anything. They aren't recorded as saying anything. They aren't portrayed as saying anything as they usually are. Instead, they're watching. 
They're watching Jesus very closely, we are told. Uh, in front of him is placed a man with dropsy. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with what dropsy is, but it is a, a condition of retaining fluid in the body. It can be any number of causes with the organs, but it causes enormous swelling that is very noticeable. Um, there's an obstruction of discharge which contributes to this noticeable swelling, and it, and it renders an individual, according to Leviticus 15.3, 15, uh, 15, unclean. Unclean, either if you have a discharge or your body fails to discharge. And, and so this guy wasn't invited as a dinner guest. You follow me? Uh, the Pharisees would not invite someone who they considered or deemed unclean to have dinner with them. This was a man brought to test Jesus once again. It appears from verse 7, this would be a fairly fairly significant or large dinner or banquet thrown by this chief Pharisee, which I don't know about you, but that, that comes across to me as a little bit paradoxical here in this setting. Uh, because I, whenever we've thrown a large dinner, either here at the church or, or we've attended some in homes or weddings and we've had the Seder. Remember just a year ago, uh, this past Friday, we had the Seder and set everything up here for that uh, uh, event and celebration. Whenever we've thrown anything like that, it, it takes a lot of work. A whole lot of work, including those who will greet the guests, those who will serve the dinner to the tables for the guests, the meals, the various needs that need to be attended to when you have people come into your home or to your place where you're celebrating. So if the Pharisees really did not think that anyone should do any labor on Sunday, why then were they throwing a large celebration on the Sabbath? Why such a large dinner? Additionally, if they believe that Jesus should not perform any work, or what their tradition calls work, uh, through healing somebody, then they probably should not have tempted him by bringing in someone with dropsy, placing him directly in front of Jesus, a man with dropsy. You see what I'm saying? If, um, if I truly care about Pastor Weiler's diet, I'm not going to go and put a candy bar on his desk in the morning directly before he shows up. I would prove in doing that that I don't really care at all about Pastor Weiler's diet. Instead, I would enjoy the fact that he might stumble, right? Similar is true with these Pharisees. They wanted Jesus to violate their tradition. They're setting him up to violate everything that they hold dear. Something Christians are warned about. Not to be a stumbling block to others. They want Jesus to violate their idea, their tradition of their laws. Uh, so when the dinner, dinner party uh, with this man with dropsy, it's, there's more than just a foul odor in the air, if you know what I mean. Um, no wonder they do not answer his question about the law in verse 3, uh, even though they are supposedly, quote-unquote, experts in the law. These lawyers are experts in the Mosaic law, but they don't give him any guidance. They just leave him out there hoping to see him fall 
They don't give him direction from the law uh, because at the end of the day, really their hope is to entrap Jesus. That's what they want to do. They want to see him stumble. They want to glean something uh, about him that they can criticize later on, something that they can attack. They're, they're just entirely unteachable. They, they don't come together to learn. They just, they just come to find error. They want someone to trip up. They want someone to fail. So when Jesus spoke um, to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They kept silent. They kept silent. And they longed for him to violate their tradition of the Sabbath, which only proves how callous and uncaring they really are. They do not care about Jesus. They do not care about the man. Jesus seeing the setup, he moves quickly on this. The language here uh, is one of a lot of action. He took hold of the man. In the Greek, it, it is actually that he seized the man. He grasped hold of this man and healed him and sent him away. So Jesus dismisses the man again, showing that, that he was never intended to be a dinner guest. Jesus dismisses him, but before the Pharisees even have have an opportunity to pin him down, to criticize, he asks all of them, in verse 5, a revealing question, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well, and he will not immediately pull him up on a Sabbath day? Before they have a window to respond, Jesus turns the tables 180 degrees. They don't even get to eke anything out. Which one of you would not do the very same thing if it were someone or something or some animal that they actually cared about? If it was someone who actually meant something to, the, to them, not like this man with dropsy. They're left speechless. They are speechless. It reads, they could make no reply. And again, healing on the Sabbath, folks, we've talked about this uh, numerous times, it's not a violation of the Mosaic Law. There's nothing in the law against healing on the Sabbath. It was all their tradition, neither showing mercy through helping a son or even an animal was a violation of the law. If you have a translation that says ass and an ox or, or a burrow, and an ox, that poses no theological discrepancy or problem. It's just one of those rare occasions where some of the ancient manuscripts differ. Originally, it could have referred to an actual burrow. It could have meant a son or a colt of a burrow, and maybe Jesus was describing one of the Pharisees' sons who acted like a burrow. We don't really know. Either way, the outcome is the same. The Pharisees are caught in their own trap. They can't even say anything. They're completely speechless, which is good. That is good because that gives Jesus now the opportunity to speak to them with a parable. He had already noticed in verse 7 how some of the guests, as they were entering, as they came in, they were picking out the places of honor at the table. See, it wasn't a casual lunch. It was a dinner 
banquet. And though their practice was, was slightly different than what we see today, uh, the predicament of the guests arriving is similar to what we run into quite regularly arriving at a wedding reception ourselves or a dinner. Uh, normally, the, the head table, the wedding table, fills up first with the wedding party, or at least the head of the table fills up first, which is expected. Everyone expects that. But then the balance of the room, it's usually arranged with, with banquet tables spread across the various corners of the room, round banquet tables. And when you and I walk in, or at least I know that I do, we immediately assess, you know, how closely should we sit to the head table? You know, how closely do I know this couple? Am I friends with this couple? Or am I a family member to them? Or should I just sit way back over here in the corner right next to the entrance of the bathroom, right? Where am I? Where do I fit in this? Very practical. Because Jesus answers the the ages-old conundrum, where do I sit? Typically in his day, I have a picture of a table here. Um, It's in the shape of a U at a banquet. That is called a triclinium table. And each seated position at that single table has, has a significance to it. It held significance. There was the head of the table. Each, each place had significance. And you can see in the center there, it was hollowed out so that the, the uh, servants could come in and then serve the meals right there to the guests. Looks a little messy, actually. Um, but that's the type of table we're likely talking about here. Uh, at large dinners, possibly as in this case, people would also recline at other tables. I've got another photo of what that might look like in a large room. Multiple tables lined up where you would recline on pillows on the floor and there would be a significance assigned to each place. Here these guests were were picking out the places of honor. They were selecting places of honor. Uh, Why would that, or what would that in itself reveal about their hearts? Just that alone seems to suggest pride because they, they saw themselves as deserving of honor. That, that, that place must be for me. Reveals the condition of the heart immediately. And it's their obvious behavior, which was typical in their day, which sets the scene of the parable. Remember, a parable is an earthly illustration, an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. So, so we should learn something about heaven in this picture. What should we see in this story? My impression is that the ones who are going to be honored in heaven are those on earth who've taken their appropriate seat by the lavatory. So this parable becomes a lesson in humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom. And to be poor in spirit, Matthew 5, verse 3, that means to be humble in spirit. It means to be uh, lowly. And it's a polar opposite of proud and arrogant. Complete opposite. And in verse 8, humility is, is a complete opposite of what Jesus is seeing. 
He sees people seeking places of honor. Seats of honor. So he says to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. And for what good reason? Well, because someone who's more distinguished than you may have been invited. Which exhibits the attitude of the truly humble person, the lowly person at heart. It's not that they think unrealistically low of themselves. Jesus doesn't encourage false humility here. Instead, the humble person is usually looking out for the best interests of others. He's thinking highly of others. And when you behave in this way, you'll you'll never have to suffer that public disgrace of being asked to go to another seat. That same disgrace that many who think highly of themselves, many who are proud, arrogant, and boastful, end up experiencing. You see what I'm saying here? This parable, it, it isn't about dinner. It's not about a wedding. It's not about how we should eat. Both the Old and New Testaments, they're, they're replete with examples that show God is displeased with those who are proud. Replete with examples. You'll never run out searching the Scriptures. Psalm 138, verse 6, For though the Lord is exalted, who is exalted? The Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly. But the haughty He knows from afar. No relationship. Very distant. James 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In our current passage, Luke 14, verse 11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And from our scripture reading earlier in Isaiah, God says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. It's it's highly offensive to God for people to think more highly of themselves than they ought. It'd be much better not to necessarily think unrealistically low of yourself, but to be content with the lowest place. What do you think Jesus was doing when he washed the disciples' feet? Was it just about dirty feet? Or was it accept, about accepting the role in the household? Jesus accepted that role, the lowest role of a servant. That's what he was doing. And in fact, he even says to them on that occasion, he says, Do you understand what I am doing? What he wanted them to understand is that he was taking the place that the lowest servant in the house normally filled. He humbled himself. He's not one who came to be served, but one to serve. Thinking of church, Jesus wouldn't have been the type of guy who would say, no, I would never do that when it comes to service. There is nothing beneath 
him as a man to serve his fellow beloved men, his church. He would have done anything for his church, even to the point of dying on a cross. In verse 10, Jesus' instruction is when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. You know, I think sitting at the seat in the corner is just fine. It's a good seat. Get served the same food as everybody else. In fact, I'll be, I'll be content right here. Serving. Serving everybody else. Not carving out a special little place for myself. But a place that serves everyone else. Um, You've probably already noticed. Verse 10 begins with a but. That indicates the behavior expected by God a glaring contrast, a a glowing contrast to what Jesus saw in his day. It's a contrast to what we observe in our day too because we have populations teeming with people who, who have that but do you know who I am virus. Proud arrogant, boastful, people who long to be noticed. Americans want to be noticed for how we dress, what we drive, the zip code we live in. We want people to know who our friends are. Earth is suffering a full-blown pandemic of pride. It's everywhere, every nation. And it's one of the reasons that that people just enjoy living their lives out in front of everyone else on social media and Instagram. You know, know, we long, I I think those are good mediums to keep in touch with family, don't get me wrong, but we long for a seat of honor. We long for people to see us. We, We want our little chance to be the Kardashians. Everybody can see. What's with us? We want to know if everybody's looking. Please notice me. Notice who I am. You know, I was thinking of this. There's a ministry. This is not a critique of the ministry, but it just popped in my head this morning. Have you heard of the ministry called I Am Second? And uh, it, it's, it's set up, and, and I don't know much about the ministry. This is not a critique of their ministry. Just an observation But their point is that Jesus is first and I am second. You know what? Maybe we should have t-shirts made up that say, I am last. So prideful. So prideful. Don't be deceived for a moment here, folks, that, that this is only talking about a dinner or how to behave every other year or so when you're invited to a wedding. Exposes the pride of our hearts. And, and we know 
that we have been infected when we enjoy elevating ourselves to levels of prominence, image, reputation, a position one of one that is higher than what we actually should be seated. This is tough stuff. This is tough stuff. But we, we love exalting ourselves in places of honor. And we forget the psalmist's warning in Psalm 88, verse 2. It's a warning to God, the psalmist writes, saying, Behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who you hate have exalted themselves. Self-exaltation, it's God's enemy. So it has to be our enemy. We need to recognize our enemy. For the Lord, of, uh, Lord God of heaven and earth says that I alone will be exalted. Only Him. So any time we venture to exalt ourselves in our position, we're, we're putting ourselves in direct competition with Him. For these reasons, the Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Notice he says empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not require, uh, regard equality with God as a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself. This is taking the form of a bondservant. It's the incarnation we're talking about. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. He humbled himself. And what the Pharisaic banquet exposed is, is how we think too much of ourselves. We seat ourselves far too high. Here's the problem. We seat ourselves far too high, so we join ourselves to those seated at that same table. You follow me? The table of the proud. It would be wiser to sit ourselves in a place more closely associated with the lowly and the humble. Because who did God choose to be rich in faith, according to James? The poor, right? The humble. The persecuted. For Proverbs 16, verse 19 assures us it's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly. Share the table with the lowly than divide the spoil with the proud. And you see, people... The people attending this feast, they're out of touch. They're out of touch with their, with their proper place. And they didn't recognize their appropriate seats. You know, spiritually, some of you guys will know what I'm talking about. Spiritually, they'd become like Bob Eukers. A few of you follow me here. 
because they took too good of a seat. And even when the usher comes to remove him, still not getting it, Euchre says, well, I must be in the front row. But the usher tells him, no. Your ticket says, you're supposed to be in the back row. Jesus' parable, it, it provides us an antivirus reminding us to recognize we, we just aren't anybody. We're not anybody. Christ is all and in all. For it would be much wiser if we would accept what the will of God is. What is the will of God? That which is good and acceptable and perfect. That we not think more highly of ourselves than a man or a woman ought to think. Romans 12, verse 3. Therefore, Romans 12, verse 16, we are not to be haughty in mind, but should instead associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. So what do you think the balance then of this passage shows? Still using the setting of a dinner, Jesus gives the the practical advice. To this Pharisee. Here's the practical part, practical part seen in verse 12. Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus seems to want us to recognize that that often when we associate it, and this may be subconscious, sometimes we consciously do it, But often when we associate, we do so with the intent of an exchange. I have to admit, when Rita and I, when we invite Jerry and Carolyn Robertson over for dinner, we do so with the intent of an exchange. In the back of my mind, I'm selfishly looking forward to that day where I get to enjoy Jerry's world-famous firehouse meatloaf. I'm expecting there's going to be an exchange. You say, oh, how did it get world famous? I said, well, this is the way it works today. If you want to be world famous, just get on the internet. This message will get uploaded to the internet, and it potentially could be heard all across the world, and we just talked about his meatloaf. Now it's world famous. Everything's world famous today. I don't know how they come around with everything being world famous. Famous. We just want to be recognized more easily than any previous generation. We can be recognized today for more than what we actually are. So this applies in a significant way to our lives. Um, believe it or not, our relationship with the Robertsons is not just about meatloaf. Admittedly, we enjoy their company. So it's more than a mere exchange of goods. 
It also becomes a, an interest, uh, an exchange of common interests, common values. We enjoy making one another laugh. It's, it's, it's fellowship. It's a good time. And it works that way for all of us. All of us. Who here can say they don't enjoy these same types of exchanges with friends, relatives, or rich neighbors? See, this was the attitude of the Pharisees. This is the problem. They viewed themselves as charitable and generous for throwing great banquets, but they were just inviting their friends. What they were trying to do was enhance their relationships with others who were like-minded, who had something to offer in return, whether that be personal affirmation or friendship or whatever that may be. Um, Another problem exposed in our life. See, Jesus isn't, isn't radically prohibiting ever having dinner with friends or neighbors or family or rich neighbors, whatever it may be. Um, instead, his desire is for us to recognize that most often, we most often anticipate receiving something in return. Be it fellowship, affirmation, meatloaf, whatever it may be. We tend to hang around people who make us feel good about ourselves. That isn't entirely bad, folks. We need encouraging fellowship. In fact, it's sanctioned in Scripture that we encourage one another over meals. It occurs in churches all the time. How great is it that the the primary tenets of the Christian faith, uh, the, the body and the blood of our Lord... Is, is remembered communally again and again over meal. How wonderful is that expression of fellowship, a common meal. It, it, it's a celebration we hold dearly, and that, that's why it's so often referred to as communion. It's what we have in common. Fellowship is necessary. Large dinners are great. But we don't want to make the mistake that extending hospitality to friends, family, or rich neighbors satisfies our responsibility of being generous. It doesn't. It's not rich towards God. It's not alms. True compassion anticipates and receives, desires nothing in return. Nothing in return. No repayment, no acknowledgement, no stroking of one's ego. To be truly charitable would be to extend our compassion to the humble, to the lowly, who have no ability to repay, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. These were the people in Jesus' day who really didn't typically have anything. Remember, in rabbinical thought, the thought held by most of these Pharisees They thought that people were blind or crippled or poor because they were experiencing God's retribution against their sin. That's the reason they viewed people as poor. They have taught themselves that. So consequently, such people, they didn't receive adequate mercy. They didn't receive what they needed. They didn't receive the compassion, the love, until Jesus came. And then that all changed. And what Jesus is suggesting, what he lived, what he did, it is completely counter 
cultural to what was being experienced in his day. Completely counterintuitive to the approach of the Pharisees. Their view of theology might have offered all Jews entrance into the kingdom of heaven, except, except for the very worst, but their theology offered an entrance to heaven to all Jews. But the fate that they were suffering in this lifetime was in their minds well-deserved. Think how horrible that'd be to have that mindset. So the theology of the Pharisees didn't embrace a, a, a conviction to eliminate the suffering of the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. You see something similar to this today over in India in the caste system. People are poor because they deserve to be poor. Christians don't hold that mindset. For the Pharisees to sell everything they own and then to give it to these people, that was lunacy for them. Complete lunacy for them to do so. If this man is blind either because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin, why would I interfere with God by rewarding him and showing compassion? Why would I invite him or her to enjoy a banquet? The scripture suggests many of them are even unclean. And I and my family, we wouldn't want to be contaminated by them. Please listen very closely, folks. We're nearing the end here. Because we might be surprised to learn that our fruit doesn't fall very far from their tree. Did a lot of reflecting on this this week. Perhaps the question we should be asking is, so what if their condition actually is due to sin? So what if they are unemployed, suffering, or even dying due to sinful practices that had crept into their lives? Alcohol abuse. AIDS drug addiction all sins so what does not Christ provide the remedy for those sins did Jesus come to call the righteous or did he come to call sinners to repentance is it those who view themselves as spiritually healthy or is it those who are desperately sick who recognize that they need a physician? And, and if we're honest, what did most of our lives look like before we were called to repentance and faith in Christ? How sick were we? Who is it that actually recognizes they need a Savior? I would dare to suggest that it's sinners. Sinners who are suffering the consequences of their sins. And I can't help but wonder if the reason that so many churches today, why so many church sanctuaries are not full, and the reason even that not every chair 
in this sanctuary today is full. Because we focused all of our attention repeatedly inviting the wrong people to Christ. Because who is it that will actually be the guests present at our Lord's eschatological supper? Follow me. Don't mistake what I'm saying. So often we want people that look just like us and we concentrate all of our efforts just on them because they're rich neighbors or they're well-dressed doesn't mean they don't get to hear the gospel and we don't love them in the same way. But sometimes we're so focused on people who make us feel better about ourselves. Who will give us a good image as we're around them. Who will make this church look successful because they're here. Who will be at the Lord's eschatological supper, the dinner? Will it be those who declare themselves righteous? Or will it be those whom God declares righteous? We're going to get to see next week. And we'll find out. But we may want to ask ourselves, if Jesus commands us to invite the poor and the lame and the crippled, and the blind, representing those who were seen as unclean in his time. If we're supposed to invite those to our suppers, and and he does, that's what he tells us, who then should we expect to see eating with him at his supper? Do you think it might be possible, or could possibly be to our advantage, to start getting to know these folks now. Dining with the lost and the lonely and the lowliest of sinners so as to prepare them for Christ's dinner. But if we keep thinking of ourselves as more than we ought, seating ourselves in places of honor, along with those who behave just like us, how are we going to ever get to know the crippled and the lame and the humble and the lowly and the poor and the spiritually blind. For I dare say, when we finally see them seated at our tables, whether that be here at our banquet or our breakfast that we have here or in our homes, I dare say when we finally see them seated at our tables, only then we will know with sufficient certainty that we're ready to be seated next to them at Christ's table. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, 